ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, it's Maggie here. Before I begin this episode, I want to offer a word of caution that we will be talking about some difficult things that may be upsetting and challenging. Today's episode is going to be exploring self-harm, what it is and what you can do to support a child who's experiencing it. I know it's not an easy topic, especially if you've got some experience of self-harm in your family. However, look after yourself and remember, if you do need support, you can call Lifeline 13 11 14. I don't remember too much about what it was about, but I think I remember feeling so much heavy emotions that day that I just was like, how else can I make it stop? I just remember crying and it was just too much. When you're a teen, emotions are so heightened. And then hormones and brain changes and pressures. It is a tricky time. Different people find different ways to react to those big feelings. And some young people turn to self-harm. I remember trying it and it was like really scary and like it was really confronting but um, the next time I felt upset it was like kind of like a two-second thought to oh let's try it again and then it slowly became a instant reaction to when I felt upset like those heightened emotions you feel like a lot of endorphins and adrenaline afterwards so you kind of distract yourself from those feelings but it's definitely not a long-lasting experience. Many parents don't realise their child is self-harming until it's been going on for weeks or even months. And they might not even consider the possibility that it could happen to their child. I remember my mum finding out maybe like a year in later and I think it was really, really difficult for her because she just couldn't grasp like why her own child would feel that it would be okay to do that. She noticed my scars a little bit. I would make up excuses, like as any kid go through stuff, I'm like, oh, the cat got me, or like, you know, just like accidentally fell over. She's like, it doesn't cross your mind, you just believe your child. I'm Maggie Dent. As a parent, finding out your child is self-harming can be so isolating, but you're not alone. Self-harm among young people is more common than you think. However, there are solutions. In this Parental as Anything, why do kids self-harm? What are the signs to look out for? And what steps can you take if you discover your child is self-harming? Professor Jo Robertson has been working with young people who self-harm for years. She leads the Youth Suicide Prevention Group at Origin, which is the Centre for Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Now, Jo, when we talk about self-harm, what do we really mean? Generally, when we talk about self-harm, what we're referring to is when people injure themselves deliberately, and that may or may not be with suicidal intent. And it might include a whole range of different methods. And some of the common ones that we see, particularly in young people, 
are perhaps self-poisoning, self-cutting, scratching, burning, things like that. So it really is when a young person is, is you know, as I say, injuring themselves in all sorts of different ways. Now, the ones you've mentioned, Joe, are probably the behaviours people associate with self-harm. A few others are punching or hitting themselves, poisoning with toxic chemicals, repeatedly pulling hair or biting nails to the point of injury and even substance misuse. When I was a teacher, Joe, I only came across a couple of cases of students self-harming over a number of years. So how common is it now? So what we are seeing, unfortunately, are increases in the prevalence of self-harm across the community. And it's hard to get really reliable and robust data on what the exact prevalence of self-harm is across the community for all sorts of different reasons. But what we do know is from the most recent data that's come out of the longitudinal study of Australian children is around a quarter, just over a quarter of young females and around just under 10% of young males aged 14 to 17, have reported engaging in self-harm over the past 12 months. If you think about that in terms of a classroom, that's over a quarter of the young girls in your Mm. classroom having engaged in self-harm over that past 12-month period. And many, many more will have had thoughts of self-harm that they perhaps haven't acted on. Oh, it's really sad. And it's even more common, actually, in trans and non-binary young people, where we see rates of up to about 90% of those young people having engaged in in self-harm. And I think probably one of the things that we really worry about is often this behaviour doesn't get taken terribly seriously by adults or professionals in young people's lives. And and what that might lead to is an escalation of the problem. So, you know, repeated self-harm, which is particularly common, again, in in females, um, and an escalation of the problem or methods of self-harm getting more serious as time goes on. So I think if there's one message that your listeners take away, it's that we should be taking this this type of behaviour seriously. We don't need to panic but we do need to be taking it seriously. Now, I've met teens, um, particularly boys, who deliberately choose to do really dangerous things because they simply don't care what happens. So can we call deliberately risky behaviour self-harming behaviour or is it not fit in that box? Well, it's interesting and we get asked this a lot, actually. This does come up a lot. Young people will always want to push the boundaries. They'll always want to take risks and things like that. So it it can be a little bit hard to unpack what is normal, if you like, adolescent risk-taking behaviour and pushing boundaries and annoying adults, you know, and compared to what is something that we need to worry about. And for me, it comes back to what's underlying the behaviour. So are they engaging in this behaviour because they have got an ambivalence towards living Mm -hmm. generally? Um, In which case, yes, I get asked a lot about, well, if a young person's engaging in self-harm, are they at risk of suicide? Is that a suicidal type behaviour? And again, it all, to me, comes back to asking the young person what's going on for them and what the behaviour means and why they're engaging in it so that we can then understand it better and, and help them better. And, you know, we work with a lot of young people who are distressed, are engaging in self-harm, might feel suicidal. And when we ask them, you know, what an episode of self-harm means for them, they might not be able to tell us. They might say, I don't know. For many young people, it might be that they're engaging in that behaviour to kind of release distressing feelings or, or express distress. For some of them, it might be 
a suicidal act. For some people, when they engage in self-harm, sometimes it might be suicidal and other times it might not be. So it really fluctuates. And I think young people do find it hard to articulate that and express that in words, which perhaps is why they're resorting to this type of behaviour in the first place. We know that puberty and adolescence is a really, really big time where everything gets really confusing and there's a lot more stress. But how does it generally start? It's tricky, it's complex, but you're right. The onset of self-harm is often around that time of adolescence where there's all sorts of different things going on for young people cognitively, emotionally, developmentally, um, physically, you know, in all those sorts of ways. And it is different for everybody. So, you know, no young person's journey to engaging in self-harm or feeling suicidal is is the same. But what I will say is it very rarely occurs in isolation. So in most cases, it will be underpinned by a sense of distress. Possibly that's a mental health problem. Most commonly, we see sort of depression and anxiety in young people, possibly characterised by a lack of hope, sometimes suicidal thoughts, but generally this kind of sense of overwhelming distress and an inability to sort of cope with that distress in other ways. So people will end up engaging in Mm -hmm. self-harm. So it will be the result of multiple things, not just one cause. Now, something I hear from parents all the time is, I just didn't see the signs. Young people can be really good at hiding behaviour that they don't want you to know about. All sorts of behaviours. So now, some of the suggestions are to look out for unexplained cuts, burns, bite marks, bruises or bald patches. And are they tending to cover their bodies up with long sleeves or pants, especially when it's hot? Have you noticed they're avoiding situations where they have to change in front of others, like swimming or surfing? Keep an eye out because if you discover self-harm early, you can help your child manage it better before it becomes a habit. You see, there are two types of self-harm. There's voluntary and habitual. Now, Michelle Mitchell is a former teacher, a mum and a teen expert. Voluntary self-harm is very much when a young person makes a deliberate, conscious choice to self-harm, and that choice is one of a lot of choices. They've got a lot of options in front of them and they make that decision. Habitual self-harm, when it's become a habit, Mm. it's a routine, it's an automatic go-to response. And any voluntary behaviour, when it's followed by a reward, has got the opportunity for it to be reinforced. So that progress between it being voluntary and habitual can happen quite quickly with self-harm. My initial reaction as a mum was failure. I felt that I had failed her. I immediately self-reflected and thought it was something that I was lacking in parenting or something that I was unable to provide for her. Jane, now that's not her real name, discovered that her 12-year-old daughter was self-harming after she saw messages between her and her friends on the iPad. I can't say that it was my finest mothering stable moment. (laughs) I found myself pretty pretty upset. We needed to do reactionary things like check her room for anything sharp, you know, when she was at school, whether we know that this was right or wrong thing to do. And, and that's just us being naive. We just had no idea what to do. It's incredibly confronting to learn your child has been secretly self-harming and it can leave you feeling completely helpless to know what to do next. 
Michelle, can you tell us what are the first steps that parents should take if they discover their child is self-harming? There's two things I like to highlight to parents first up, okay? They're about to have an initial conversation with their kid. What they do and say matters in that point, and I ask them to process those initial emotions away from their kid. And also, if we come on like two panicky mode, they're not going to come to us. Please go for a big, long walk or cool down because it's the calm parent who they can feel safe with to explore something really vulnerable. Yeah. And this leads to the second point that we want to identify the purpose of that initial conversation and really anchor ourselves in this. Take a moment to read some blogs and or even just breathe for a minute because otherwise we come in really unedited. And those initial reactions, they can be judgment, blame, shame. They can be insensitivity. They can be even be blaming others that have got nothing to do with it, like their friends. Oh, or totally. We, please give them some warning please let them know, hey, I want to have an important conversation with you. If nothing else, you've now got their attention and their interest. Get some anchor statements up your sleeve. And they're things that we can sort of use in awkward moments or to help us transition to another idea. But things like there's nothing that could ever change the way that I love you. There's nothing we can't get through together. If we have some of those statements just ready to go, it can help parents just fill in those gaps. Yeah, I always got your back. And we need that first conversation about self-harm to be a really safe experience. And sometimes we have to reconcile with the fact that we're not going to get all our questions answered in that first conversation. Our main goal is to calm their nervous system and start the conversation that will keep continuing. So rather than focus on how do we stop you doing this, we need to kind of work out what's driving you to choose this and how can we build strategies or competence in that area. Is that a fair assessment of it? Oh, I love it because how about we talk about three core needs that yes. kids have. We we often think maybe they're attention seeking or, but we need to really reframe it in our mind and think about these behaviours come from core needs. They're not meeting in a healthy way. So connect with me, understand me and protect me. So connect with me is see me and hear me and just delight in me the way that I am. Understand me is all about responding to my needs, help me organise my thoughts, see the chaos that I'm in. Um, And that's why young people go online a lot. They're trying to understand what's happening. And the third one is protect me. Help me feel safe. See how extreme my distress is. And the more extreme young people's pain feels and young people feel deeply, the more open they are to really extreme ways of managing and coping with that pain as well. So they need us to be those big people in their lives. Um, a beautiful question I find to ask is if there, if I was in your head right now, this would totally make sense. But from where I'm sitting, it's more difficult. I need Excellent. you to help me understand. Excellent. And it gives them the opportunity to share their experience with you, which is unique to them. I find these questions really important too. Is there anything I could do that could make a difference? Because we we assume we know what to do, but putting it back and asking them. Let me know how I can be helpful rather than let me jump in and tell you what I think I should do. 100%. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that I could be missing? And sometimes the answer to that question is one that we don't necessarily want to hear or we feel ill-prepared to hear. So there can be other things that are going on in our kids' lives as well. And if we have created this beautiful safe space where kids can talk, it's amazing what can surface in those times. We all had a big cry together. 
and we were able to bring the conversation around to to love and support for her um, by saying now that we know we need to be able to move forward and um, help you get out of this space, which she obviously, you know, received in that moment. She felt supported. We had lots of cuddles and after all of the heightened first reaction calmed down, we were able just to sort of sit there and and hug and, and, and have a moment of support. In the end, we got her into our school counsellor and she was very happy to do that. It was obvious that she'd fallen into a space uh, where she would describe was a relief of pain for her. Um, and the confronting part of that, I think, was is that we didn't really know that she was in pain. When we looked at our family, we provide her a beautiful home. There was no abuse in the family. Me and my husband have a great marriage. We couldn't see where the pain was coming from. And so it was a shock for us to find out she actually was in pain. To be honest, it's a pretty humbling thing to find out that your child is self-harming. It, it, it can't help but, as a mum, take your breath away and feel that there is something that you haven't done. And because you feel that way, uh, that you have somewhat failed your child, you find that it becomes something you don't want to share. If you find out that your child has been self-harming, please know it is absolutely no reflection on your ability as a parent. It's so important to hold that space. Because adolescence is incredibly confusing and stressful with so much change going on, and our kids are trying to deal with it, solving things by themselves, and they often pull away from you. Michelle, you have a wonderful strategy called Safety Plans, that can help families who discover a child is self-harming. So can you tell me, how do they work? When young people have a really clear pathway of support, it provides guardrails. And remember, they're feeling really overwhelmed right now. So don't ever feel like they don't want you to step in to that protective space with them. They really do. No matter how much they're telling you they don't, they really, really do. And safety first might mean, you know, putting medication away or blades or knives. Um, some parents do shifts through the night if their kids are in a really bad state. Don't ever, ever hesitate to call an ambulance, front up to a hospital, call a helpline. Going back to the concepts of voluntary and habitual self-harm, Michelle, how, how do we respond depending on whether it's voluntary or it's habitual. How we respond to those two are completely different. Voluntary self-harm will respond so much quicker to preventative strategies. And I've sat with some gorgeous girls, Maggie, that I've just looked at and they're 13 years old and I've said, do you think you can just stop? And they've giggled and they've looked back at me and said, yeah, I think I can. Habitual self-harm is completely different and that would be completely inappropriate. And what we're looking at with habitual self-harm is step-down strategies and sometimes choosing less harm, eating chilies, ice, flicking rubber bands on your wrist. There's some beautiful practical strategies that we can mention too is building a coping kit with kids where they have a range of things that mean something to them that they can do when their emotions are high things that they can do if someone isn't around, which I think is really important. And that can include things like body paint, which can be very uh, a sensory experience and very soothing 
in maybe a place they usually self-harm or even tattoos. I've seen kids put butterfly tattoos on areas as a reminder or even write their grandma's name in a place they usually self-harm as a reminder not to self-harm. So things like that can be really helpful. I love that. Now, I know from my own experience, teenagers don't always want to talk to anyone professionally, but how important is it, Michelle, that they talk to a qualified professional about self-harm? I think it's ideal that we always offer kids medical support, maybe in the form of a psychologist or a counsellor to start with, because it shows them how seriously that we're taking it. They may not be ready for that. Sometimes putting kids in a room and just shutting the door and asking them to talk about their feelings is like hell on earth for them. (laughs) They're already, already drowning in their feelings. Why would I want to go and talk to someone about how awful they all are? However, I think maybe it's us as parents go and find and go and have a chat to a professional who's good in this space so we can really understand how we can support them. Yeah, and you you really, it's like searching for a needle in a haystack. And self-harm is notoriously difficult to treat. It's not like an ABC and it responds to this. It really is so much more about connection. And that can start with, you know, like we talk about the big four, Maggie, you know, therapy, medication, sleep and exercise. And with therapy, it's any relationship that they find therapeutic. Isn't that important? Yeah. We've got to work out what works for you not just one size fits all. And that's what I think is so beneficial with people who've really walked this journey with young people. Agreed. The individuality within this topic is amazing. And and I think we need to see every single young person that's in families all across Australia right now and in the world, they're a unique human being with unique needs. And, and if we can dial into those needs and really respond well to them, they've got the best chance of the scales being tipped in their favour. Let's say a teen has come home and said um, they've just found out or they're really worried because a friend is self-harming, what should that parent do then? You know, do you call the other parent? Do you, what do you do? From years of working with families, Maggie, I've come to this conclusion. Rarely when one parent goes to another parent directly, it often doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. And if, <laughs> if it's important enough to talk to a parent about it's possibly important enough to need a third party. And that's where I'd suggest that parents can go to a school anonymously. They can go and ask for confidentiality and leave it in the school's hands to be able to follow through. Surprisingly, so many things that we're seeing as a shock, schools are very aware of already. So they're probably privy to more information than even we are. But I feel like that does two things. It protects our child's relationship with their friend Um, because the fallout can be significant socially if one parent goes to another parent. The other thing it does is that it doesn't put a barrier between us and our relationship with that child that's self-harming. So we can step in and be a, a beautiful, positive encouragement to them without that barrier there. Now, we know the internet can offer, you know, young people helpful information in this space and also can create uplifting and inspiring spaces online. But we do know that there's a lot more negativity and we know it's that wiring of those, you know, algorithms that feed them with negativity. Do you think those sorts of things are also contributing to the increase in self-harm in today's teens? 
Yeah, my perspective of this has really been impacted by talking to young adults who have just walked the journey. They tell me that they felt understood, they found communities where they felt like they belonged, but they said that the negatives far outweighed that. And what can start out as help-seeking, quite naively, it can quickly become an education about how to conceal self-harm or different techniques or normalising levels of self-harm, Maggie, that they have never dreamed about. One of the big things that tips young people from voluntary to habitual self-harm is the reward of belonging. Mm. So when a community affirms it and it reinforces it, it very quickly can take it into that space of it becoming a habit. And I see that as one thing where community support programs online can really not play into kids' best interests. Celeste, who you met at the beginning, is 25 now, and she's learned much healthier ways of coping with those big feelings and big emotions. The times that I thought it was like easier to talk to mum was definitely when she was like calm, and then we were doing something that we enjoyed doing together. Maybe like for example, when we like cooked together, and I felt like it was something normal and it was something easy, and I could be like, oh hey, like this is how I feel. The one thing I really didn't want to do was become a burden to anyone. That was like the one thing I really didn't want to do. Strange as it is, I don't think I would change anything because it would be changing like my mother's love for me because she took all her beliefs and all her understanding of like how it's not a thing and she kind of like learnt to throw that out the window because her love for me was more. Now what's your message? to young people experiencing self-harm who might be listening to this, what do you wish you could tell them? Even if you have like a two-second pause, because that's when your mind realises, hey, this is not the behaviour you should be taking, this is not the response you should have. And in those two, three seconds, if you can just kind of stop and say, hey, I should do something else, the more you do that, the longer the delay becomes. I know it seems really tough right now and in that moment it is so intense. That's the only solution you feel like and that's the only emotion, like you just want it gone. Listen to that voice and just pick something else that's nearby. Let's listen to music or, hey, it's nice outside, let's go for a walk. With each time it got stronger and stronger and better until I developed like new habits and coping mechanisms. I promise in like a year or two years you will look back and you will not even remember how upset you felt at that moment. Like many of the big awkward conversations that we need to have with our kids about sex death, body safety, pornography. It's the same with self-harming. We need it to be conversations that we have in small ways over time so they're aware of it. We might remind them there are other ways of releasing big feelings by crying, by spending time in nature, deep breathing, running, punching a punching bag, or talking to someone safe and maybe remind your child over and over again. They can always come to you. If they feel like that and you will support them and you will love them no matter what. I also recommend you remind them of the lighthouse figure. 
And that is the other adult ally they may have in their life because sometimes it can be really hard bringing something as big as this to us, their parents. So when you discover that your child is self-harming, rather than panicking and feeling like you've failed your child, I want you to try and see it as an opportunity to grow and to heal for the whole family. And then lean in with compassion to really see, hear and understand the unique pressures your tween or teen is struggling with. Validate that adolescence is a really bumpy ride for everyone and that gradually things can get better and easier. And then allow some agency autonomy as they grapple with their self-harming. In other words, what can they do? What choices do they want? What supports would they prefer? Don't forget the power of kindness. Sometimes it's just little gestures of kindness that can make them feel even more supported and held. And make sure you're also being kind to yourself as you walk this journey that you didn't want to go on. There are hard times in life for everybody and it's together that we conquer them. And you'll be teaching that to your tween or teen as well. Next time, in Parental as Anything, when is it time to let your child walk to school on their own? It's a busy road. Nobody's necessarily paying attention. Kids muck around. I just know that it's much safer to just pick her up and collect her myself. That's next on Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app. This episode of Parental as Anything was recorded and produced on Gadigal, Combermere and Turrbal country. Hey, I'm Sana Kadar and I host a podcast called All in the Mind. And if you've ever wondered how our brains work or why people behave the way they do, you'll love All in the Mind. It's a psychology podcast that explores everything from mental health to artificial intelligence, with topics like how our brains interpret fantasy novels, what psychological techniques scammers use, and what it's like living with bipolar disorder. Find All in the Mind on the ABC Listen app.